1: we interrupt this broadcast. Before it was history, it
2: was news.
3: It appears as though something has happened in the morning.
2: I season. said, Those are
4: shots. Man on the moon. We copy it down, Eagle. I shall
2: resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow.
1: I'm Bill Curtis. It's been said that breaking news becomes the first draft of history. What's overlooked is how deeply we relied on broadcast journalists who met the adrenalized demands of those moments, often with courage and daring. Broadcast journalism has a simple, sober purpose, to keep the public informed through the best and worst of times. But the consequence of that labor is profound. As legendary newsman Walter Cronkite wrote, the free press is the central nervous system of a democratic society. No true democracy can exist without it. History has borne out that wisdom, but before it was history, it was news.
0: Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? That Friday was supposed to just be like another typical Friday.
1: What's the location of the
6: emergency? Sandy Hook School. I think there's somebody shooting in here. Sandy Hook School.
5: I'd never been to Newtown. It just wasn't a place where news happened.
6: On
2: and off duty troopers immediately upon arrival entered the school and began a
7: complete active shooter search. This story just kept getting worse and worse and worse. It got to a point where you're like, Jesus, when is this going to stop? Each time I learn the
4: news, I react not as a president, but as anybody else would as a parent. And that was especially true today. Evil visited this community today.
5: Something just didn't feel right about asking these little kids what they had just seen and heard. <clears throat> Are you scared? Yes
2: like cover hurricanes and tornadoes, that every time you do that, you get better at it. You don't get better at school shootings or mass shootings. I thought that
8: Sandy Hook would sort of bring an end to the mass shootings. And obviously, 10 years later, that has not happened.
9: I'm Brian Williams. It was 11 days before Christmas, Friday, December 14th, 2012. That day's morning news told us the lead stories were President Obama's decision to pull the name of Susan Rice for Senate confirmation as Secretary of State, another decision by the president to not interfere with marijuana laws in individual states, and a new report out on CIA-sponsored torture during the Bush administration. Indeed, to the north of New York City in the snow-covered small town of Newtown, Connecticut, The downtown holiday lights were strung up and all the children in Newtown along with their parents were getting excited for the holiday season. The whole look of the place, the quaint New England atmosphere in the town, that's what drew couples like Ian and Nicole Hockley to make a home in Newtown and raise a family there.
0: That Friday was supposed to just be like another typical Friday. You know, got the kids up, gave them their breakfast, Dylan had been working on having a daily supplement of of liquid vitamins. That morning was the first time he actually finished his vitamins, and he was very proud of himself because he knew how important it was to me. And um, took them up to the driveway to get on the school bus.
9: Seven-year-old Dylan was a first grader, and nine-year-old Jake was in the third grade at their local school, Sandy Hook Elementary.
0: Then I was due to go into the school that afternoon because it was the day that we were making the gingerbread houses and Dylan was in Miss Soto's class and that was going to be that afternoon's activity.
9: Jackie and Mark Barden and their three children, 12-year-old James, 10-year-old Natalie, and 7-year-old Daniel, who was also a first grader at Sandy Hook Elementary, were all looking forward to ending their week with their Friday night
10: tradition. We had our Friday night pizza, which was our family and two other families in our neighborhood would get a, a, a gigantic pizza from our local grocery store and all the kids would play and all the adults would visit. Uh, and it was a nice little tradition that we were immersed in at that particular time. And uh, Daniel and I had referenced it that morning, like it's gonna be, Daniel said, it's gonna be a great day. And I said, yep, Friday night pizza. And it was just another good Friday in that moment of our lives.
9: It was a clear, crisp, and trouble-free start that morning at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Classrooms filled with kids excited for Christmas. The school day started, as they always had, with a comforting routine. 9 a.m., children settling into their classrooms. 9.10 a.m., the Pledge of Allegiance. 9.15 a.m., outside doors locked. Then came 9.30, something no one saw coming. A lone gunman, armed with two pistols, an AR-15, 10 extra magazines with 30 rounds each, shot his way through a glass panel next to the locked front doors of the school. He was wearing black clothing, yellow earplugs, sunglasses, and an olive green tactical vest. When he opened fire, the school principal Dawn Hawksprung and the school psychologist Mary Sherlock ran from the front office into the hall to see what was happening. Seeing the individual and his rifle, the women called out, Shooter, stay put! School secretary Barbara Halstead called 911, then hid in a first aid supply closet.
7: What's the
6: location of the emergency? Sandy Hook School. I think there's somebody shooting in here. Sandy Hook School.
7: Okay, what makes you think that?
6: Because somebody's got, gun. I saw a glimpse of somebody. They're running down the hallway. Okay. They're still running. They're still shooting. Sandy Hook School, please.
9: The school janitor, Rick Thorne, then ran through the hallways, alerting classrooms. Teachers and kids went immediately into lockdown. A procedure they had practiced and practiced again. But the gunman fired again, this time killing Hoxprung and Sherlock on the spot.
7: John nine one one, what's the location of your emergency? Sandy Hook Elementary School, twelve Dickinson drive. Okay, I've got that. What's going on down
4: there? It's, I believe they shooting at the front at the front glass. Something's okay. going on. All
8: right, I've got all, I want you to stay on the line with me. Where are you in the school? I'm down the corridor. I'm all right.
9: In- I want you to take cover. All right. Let me uh, let me get some information from you. What makes you think that? The front glass
4: was all shot out, and it kept kept going on. Okay. I'm on the line with a 911
8: call. It's still happening.
9: Newtown police received numerous 911 calls about the emergency at the school, and you could hear the urgency over the police radio.
3: Jen,
7: get the sergeant. All right.
3: Get everybody you can going down there. State
9: police have been notified. Liz Dahlem, a morning news reporter for WVIT in Hartford, the local NBC affiliate, was preparing what she thought was her final story for the morning, when the newsroom started hearing about something happening at a school.
5: I worked the 3 to 11 a.m. shift, and we had had our corporate Christmas party the night before. So I was up way past my bedtime, um, was thinking, okay, it's a Friday, we're going to just get through the day. The weekend is upon us. Um, My photographer, John Senecal, and I were back in the newsroom starting to write and edit our piece for the 11 a.m. show. And that's when the scanner chatter started. 6-7,
9: St. Hook School. Callers indicating she thinks there's someone shooting in the building. WVIT's news director Michael St. Peter was holding his daily editorial meeting when it was interrupted by his assignment editor telling him she was hearing police chatter about a shooting. Our assignment editor Danielle Poulin,
8: was uh, listening to the scanners and getting ready for her day and she heard some sporadic chatter on the scanners that just said something to the effect of school and shooting. I don't individual that I have on the phone is continuing to hear what he believes to be gunfire.
9: Hearing the commotion in the newsroom, cameraman John Senecal knew
7: that his day was about to change. You could tell there was just some just unease, you know, there was stuff going on. You could hear it in the background. You could kind of tell people were up at the, the desk and we had an open newsroom. And I remember Mike St. Peter, who was our news director at the time, was standing up at the desk. You knew something was up, right?
9: By now, the gunman had made his way into room 8, a first grade classroom. Substitute teacher Lauren Russo was hiding her students in a bathroom, but the gunman forced his way in, killing Russo and Rachel Devino, a behavioral therapist for special needs students. And in that room, he killed 15 children. He then crossed over to room 10, another first grade classroom, where he proceeded to kill the teacher, Victoria Soto and five of her students in cold blood.
8: We were busy making phone calls to try to find out exactly what the situation was and we got a hold of the spokesman for the Connecticut State Police, Lieutenant Paul Vance and he said that he couldn't tell us anything that was going on but he did say, I would advise you to make sure that you send somebody to the scene. This was a a clear tip-off without giving us any specifics that There was a story developing there that was going to be something that, as a news organization, we were going to be interested in covering, that it was something that we should cover, that we should be there for. And so that was, in fact, our first inkling that this was probably going to be a significant story. But we didn't even imagine, at that point, the tragedy that was unfolding.
5: Our news director, who was the most even-keeled, calm, never-rattled guy... Ran out of his office and screamed across the newsroom, Dahlem and Senegal, get your gear and start heading west. And we knew just by his sense of urgency, this was something big.
7: Part of me is like, I want to go home. I want to end my week. And the other part of me is like, all right, we got a job to do. So Liz and I get in the satellite truck. We're banging down I-84 and we're going. Like, we're going.
0: My kickboxing class that I went to that morning was supposed to be from 10 to 11. So as I was driving to kickboxing, one of my best friends called me and said, Hey, you might want to keep out of town center. There's a lot of cops and something's something's going on. And, you know, Newtown, like the most excitement we get here is, you know, SUV versus deer, really. So I just assumed it was a bad car crash or something. And I just said to her, don't worry, I'm on the other side of town going to kickboxing. And she said, okay.
9: Just three and a half minutes after receiving the first 911 call, members of the Newtown Police Department, both on duty and off, converged on the school grounds, rushing toward what was now an active and urgent crime scene. As officers followed their training and stormed into the building, the gunman ended his 11-minute rampage by shooting himself in the head with his own 9mm Glock handgun guaranteeing we would never really know his true motive.
8: As early as 10, 10.15, 10.30, we were uh, picking up little bits of information. We knew by 10.30 that the incident was at Sandy Hook Elementary School. We knew fairly early on that the schools in the community were all on lockdown, that the schools were secured. So we were feeding Liz, this information as she and John were heading to the scene. And at the same time, we were going on the air with some periodic news bulletins.
2: This is a photo just into our newsroom of students being evacuated in the last hour or so from Sandy Hook Elementary School. It was supposed to be a very
9: easy day. Correspondent Chris Hansen was working for Dateline
11: NBC. I was in my office at 30 Rockefeller Plaza, sort of working on a project here and there, making some phone calls. And then I saw the bulletin come across that there had been a school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. Chris Jansing was on the air on MSNBC
9: when first news of the shooting broke
4: right now it's a tremendously chaotic situation parents are arriving children are being escorted out by
6: police clint van Zandt, thank you if you could hold on the line it is the top of the hour 11 o'clock here on the east coast where this incident is taking place i'm chris jansing that will do it for jansing and company richard Louie picks up our continuing coverage of this breaking news richard i had anchored my show and got word that there had been a shooting in a school in connecticut and rushed to get in a car with my producer on the way you're wondering what is really happening because what you learn covering these mass shootings is that facts evolve they're complicated scenes they're complicated situations
9: nicole hockley was just a few minutes into her kickboxing class when the phone started to ring at the front desk at the gym
0: Normally, the teacher would never stop during a class and answer the phone, but Mary, who was the teacher that day, did. And she said, Nicole, it's it, someone's trying to reach you. Of course, I had my phone on silent during class, and it was my friend again. And she said, it's a shooting and it's at our school, because her son was also a first grader that day and one of Dylan's friends. And she was panicking. I literally fell to the floor. And her husband couldn't get to the school, she couldn't get to the school. She asked me if I would go to the school and find her son for her. And I said, of course. And my friend Paula, she just kind of scooped me up and put me in her car and she drove me. And the closer we got to Newtown, it was just chaos. And when she drove up the main street of the school, it was clear we couldn't go any further because it was gridlock so i Paula said go and i just got out of the truck and started running and was ushered into the firehouse with everybody else
12: i was in bridgeport connecticut i had done a public event in the city and then i was due to meet my family at the train station in bridgeport
9: chris murphy is a democratic u.s senator from connecticut who back
12: then was in congress and his house district included Newtown. At the time, I had a four-year-old and a one-year-old. We were gonna go down to the city to see the Christmas displays in Manhattan and then come back later in the day. I was on the train platform with my family when I received word there had been a shooting. And at first I thought it was you know a workplace shooting, maybe you know, one or two people hurt. And then shortly before the train arrived, my staffer got word that there were kids involved, that kids had been shot, uh, and I realized that I had to go to Sandy Hook. I drove up and I was there the rest of the day. CNN's
2: attitude used to be, even if it was far away, even if it was overseas, start getting people to go in the direction of the thing. Ali Velshi was then a correspondent for CNN. So literally I was standing around the newsroom and one of the bosses pointed to me and said, can you hit the road now? So my producer and I, headed out immediately and they started to just dispatch people and the basic instruction in the beginning was get to Newtown Connecticut
9: The Newtown School District placed a reverse 911 call alerting parents to the situation as they knew it
6: Due to reports of a shooting as yet unconfirmed the district is taking preventative measures by putting all schools in lockdown until we ensure safety of all students and staff
3: Thank you it was, it was the most terrifying call I've ever received, you know, not just for my own daughter, but for so many other kids.
5: How did you find them?
3: We just ran like every other parent, and we found out we couldn't get to the school. But, you know, fortunately, you know, the fire department, Sandy Hook Fire Department's nearby. So that's why so it was just a question of finding your teacher, your, your daughter and teacher, Hi. and just um, looking at that point, because you really didn't know if they were all out. Uh, then the concern became for all the other families and all the other kids. So. That's where we all are right now and no one's leaving.
12: There's no words
2: that I could come up with um, that would even come close to describing um, the sheer terror of, of hearing that your son is in a place where there's been violence and you can't do anything to immediately help them or protect them.
6: I know some of them I'm not gonna see anymore.
9: After receiving several frantic calls and texts from other Sandy Hook parents, Mark Barton dropped everything and headed for the school.
10: At some point there, I was in motion in our family minivan at a high rate of speed on my way to uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School, listening to the news to see if I could hear anything. And it's probably about 10 or 15 minutes drive from our house to the school. And uh, when I arrived, I couldn't even get close to the school because there were just so many emergency vehicles and people everywhere. Somebody offered to let me park in their yard and I just ran the rest of the way down to the firehouse and it was it was weird and surreal. It was a strange scene.
9: Nicole Hockley picks up the story from there.
0: Surreal's not the word that first comes to mind. Chaos is, is what comes to my mind because I tried to get into the firehouse and it was just a wall of people, a wall of parents straining their necks to look around, trying to push past each other, and there was no order at that point, so I was probably there, maybe this was ten twenty by this point, 10-15, 10-20, and you were just trying to press through, and you'd get into a room, and there would be like all the kids sitting on the floor, and you'd, all the parents would be trying to look over each other to see and and, and help and you'd recognize parents but everyone just kind of had wild eyes at that point because I think we were all just scared to death.
9: Chris Hansen lived in Connecticut and started feeling the momentum to head north from New York.
11: I got a phone call from downstairs where the executive producers of Dateline have their offices and the assignment editor said maybe you should just head to Connecticut. You're going home tonight, right? I said, well, actually, I'm staying in the city to have dinner. But yeah, I mean, if this thing turns out to be a big deal, of course, I'll get to Connecticut right away. And I said, let me make some calls on it. So I called an FBI agent who I'd known for many years in Connecticut. And he picks up the phone. He said, where are you? I said, I'm in my office in New York City. He goes, are you sitting down? I said, yes. Why? He said, 20 kids dead, six teachers. And it was silent. Horrible. Bloody scene. Tragic. So I go downstairs. I said, look, 20 kids, 6 faculty. Let's go. And there's talk about, well, let's get sedans and get out there quick. I said, no, no, no. The quickest way to do this on a Friday and rush hour. Everybody get to the train station. I would let a parade of producers. And other people were heading that way from NBC Nightly News and other branches of NBC. But I led the state line contingency out there and we jumped on a train i called my son i said go get my car and a warm coat and go to subway sandwich and get you know a dozen sandwiches and meet me at the train station and he shows up and i jam all these people in the car and off we go to head up to newtown The WVIT
9: television crew correspondent Liz Dollem and her cameraman John Senecal were the first television news crew to show up on the scene that day.
5: Once we got into the town, it was just rows and rows of police cars, ambulances, just wedged in any way they could to get close to the school. The school itself was up a very long street slash driveway so we could not physically see the school from where we were but there was a community center and a fire department and the fire department was set up as this staging area
8: so as as Liz and John pulled into the area we tried to get Liz on the phone because they hadn't set up what we call a live shot yet so she went on the air with us to describe what she was physically seeing as they approached the scene.
2: Let's go to our Liz Dahlem, who's live at the scene with the very latest on the situation of this report of a school shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary. What do you you have, Liz?
5: It's very much an active scene out here. We've got lots of parents looking for their children, just waiting for word as to whether or not they're okay. Here on the scene, you can tell that State police are out here. They have been using uh, their we- they have their weapons standing by. and The chopper is also above the school. That's where the school is located, further down Dickinson Drive. Now that chopper's been sitting up there for the past couple of minutes now. We're told the children inside that school were evacuated a short while ago.
9: Chris Jansing arrived in Sandy Hook and immediately experienced the profound sadness that had quickly transformed a beautiful town in southern New England.
6: When I arrived, there's a priest, and I walked up to him, and a producer told me that he was the priest at the church where these children had been members, many of them. And I just looked at him, and I said, I'm so very sorry. And he started crying. And I started crying. I don't, I don't think ever in, in the 40 years I've been a journalist, I've ever cried or hugged a person, but we just hugged and held on to each other. The enormity of what was unfolding was so extraordinary. And somehow that hug and the fact that he cried gave me the strength to say, okay, now I have a job to do. And I need to be on my game because this matters. This matters to him. It matters to the people of this community. And very clearly, you knew this is something that touched the national psyche very deeply.
9: We'll return to our episode in just a moment.
5: As a professional welder, Shana Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
9: By now, all of the network news divisions and the cable news networks had correspondence on the scene or on their way. NBC's Chris Hansen and his team
11: canvassed the surrounding neighborhood, hoping to get some answers. When we arrived on the scene, I teamed up with one of my producers, Tim Ullinger. And, you know, in a, in a case like that, everybody does everything. You know, there's no, I want to cover this part of the story, I want to cover that. It's a matter of getting on the ground and getting as much information as you can with as much sensitivity as one can muster. I went out into the neighborhoods of Newtown, near the school, and started to talk to people. We were able to find out that the shooter was Adam Lanza, a 20-year-old, who had killed his mother, gunned her down before he left the house, went to the school, inflicted this carnage at a mass level, and then killed himself when authorities arrived on the scene.
9: Like other parents, Mark Barden was growing desperate for any information about his young son, Daniel.
10: It was excruciating not knowing what was going on inside the school. And I remember staff or parent volunteers holding up cards with grade numbers on them, one, two, three, four, in the garage of the firehouse. And they were collecting the students as they were evacuated from the school. And I kept hovering around grade one waiting for Daniel, trying to get information from anyone and everyone, and as was everyone else, and getting phone calls and texts, like, what's going on? Have you heard anything? And I remember at some point during that, we heard that there was a rumor or a report, maybe, that the principal had been shot. And I'm still waiting for Daniel, and now I'm shifting gears into thinking about how am I going to tell him about that, if that is the case. I was already trying to figure out how to explain to him. And just my mind racing, thinking what, what, what is going on?
2: On and off duty troopers responded to the school.
9: This is Lieutenant J. Paul Vance, spokesman for the Connecticut State Police.
2: And with Newtown police immediately upon arrival, entered the school and began a complete active shooter search of the building. That included checking every door, every crack, every crevice, every portion of that school. There were several fatalities at the scene, both students and staff. Uh, There is no information relative to that that is being released at this time uh, until we've made complete and proper notification. The shooter is deceased inside the building. There's a great deal of work that is undertaken uh, immediately upon locating the shooter.
9: Once at Sandy Hook, Senator Chris Murphy stationed himself at the firehouse.
12: I was at the firehouse all uh, afternoon. I tried to, you know, help out any way that I could, even if it was just, you know, helping to, you know, put food out for the families and the first responders. I fielded phone calls from some of my colleagues, especially those who had gone through these mass shootings in the past. Ed Perlmutter is a friend, a congressman from Colorado who had been through the Aurora shooting. He said. Listen, it's going to feel weird to be there. You're going to feel like an interloper. You're going to feel like you don't belong. But folks want you there. They want to know that their elected officials are present for these moments. They want to know that you're seeing this and that you're learning from it. So, you know, don't feel like you don't belong there. Um, Be there today. Come back tomorrow. Come back the day after. Wolf Blitzer anchored the day's coverage for CNN.
4: This is CNN Breaking News. Ashley Banfield is now on the scene for us in uh, Newtown, Connecticut as well. Uh, Ashley, give our viewers a sense of what you're seeing and hearing.
5: Well, I'm in the same place, Wolf, that uh, the Connecticut Governor Dan Malloy just updated us all. You can see just from the collection of microphones behind me, this has become a concentrated media center. And another piece of detail that came from the mouth of a, a little child with the sweetest voice This child told a story of how the teachers tried to protect them from the information as they were getting them out of the school, saying that there was an animal in the school and that that's why they needed to lock the doors to protect them from all that noise they could hear and to hear that little tiny voice telling that.
6: um, It was pretty remarkable.
4: Ashley, I know this is a difficult uh, story for all of us to cover, uh, all of us, and I know you have children.
6: I think everybody here has been just immensely affected, and I apologize Wolf, but it is really remarkable to see this many seasoned cameramen and reporters who I've been in the field with for, you know, 20 years, all having the same uh, reaction to uh, what's transpired.
9: Once the police had arrived and were assured the shooting was over and the gunman was dead, they still had to count for everyone and evacuate the school. They instructed the students, little kids who were scared to death, to keep their eyes closed, to put their hands on the shoulders of the classmate in front of them, and walk out single file. Teachers then escorted the children to the neighboring firehouse and into the arms of their waiting and anxious parents.
0: We still didn't have any information at that point. And then we all just kind of, all the parents, we just pressed against the side walls to let the little kids walk through. And by this point, I'd found Jake in a side room with his third grade classroom. I found Miss Soto's classroom in someone I didn't recognize with only a couple of kids. Um, Yeah, and that was hard.
5: So you can sort of reimagine the image of the students walking shoulder to shoulder, being escorted by police down the hill and reunited with their parents at that staging area at the fire department. Now, at this point, when I see a parent with their child, I decide to try to discuss and news gather at that point because it's my job to get this information and of course with parental consent I was asking students live on the air what they heard and what they saw now this is an elementary school kids aged 5 to 10 something about that just didn't feel right but this is the line that you straddle between getting the information and covering a story like that as a human. Sweetie, did you hear anything? Um, Yeah, I was in the gym and I heard a loud, well, I heard
7: like seven loud booms and the gym teachers told us to go in the corner. So we all huddled and I kept hearing these booming noises and the um, we started crying. So all the um, gym teachers told us to go into the office where no one could... Find us.
5: Something just didn't feel right about asking these little kids what they had just seen and heard. But I knew our viewers had to get an understanding of what happened in that building. So some parents were very happy to allow their kids to speak. Others were not, understandably so. But I do remember putting a little child on the air
7: and asking them what they saw. The teacher told us to all go where our library is and that's and get behind something so no way the guy wouldn't see us. And one of the first grade teachers died that I felt bad for him, that our principal got shot.
0: Were you scared?
5: Yes. At the time, I didn't really even have the wherewithal to let the emotion of that moment sink in. It was more just back to you to the anchors and just letting the real raw emotion play out live on television because that's what you do during breaking news.
8: I don't think that I've satisfactorily resolved in my mind the conflict between the desire to let people know what's going on with the raw, unfiltered interviewing of young children and they were very young but i didn't have much of a playbook i didn't have any experience with this kind of a scenario before but what they were saying was too important not to not to convey it to the uh, to our audience
9: back to our episode in just a moment
1: I'm Bill Curtis. Sandy Hook Promise is a national nonprofit organization founded and led by family members whose loved ones were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Their intent is to honor all victims of gun violence by turning their tragedy into a transformation. Here to share their mission are co-founders Mark Barton and Nicole Hockley.
0: School shootings are not inevitable. There is so much that you can do. None of this is inevitable. We know signs exist when someone is at risk of hurting themselves or someone else. So that's what we do at Sandy Hook Promise, is we teach you what to look for and how to act when you see it. And then if you see it, we give you the tools to ensure that it's acted on.
10: And when you're trained to recognize those warning signs and you know what to do next, it just becomes who you are. And over time, through generations, that's where the culture change comes.
1: Sandy Hook Promise is doing everything they can to protect children from school shootings, violence, and other harmful acts. But they need your support today to expand their ability to bring their Know the Signs violence prevention programs into more schools and communities. Please go to SandyHookPromise.org and donate what you can today. That's SandyHookPromise.org.
11: We thank you.
9: From the podium in the White House press briefing room, the nation heard from President Obama. He was visibly and palpably emotional because he spoke that day as a parent and president.
4: This afternoon, I spoke with Governor Malloy and FBI Director Mueller. I offered Governor Malloy my condolences on behalf of the nation. Uh, We've endured too many of these tragedies in the past few years. And each time I learn the news, I react not as a president, but as anybody else would as a parent. And that was especially true today. The majority of those who died today were children, Uh, beautiful little kids between the ages of five and 10 years old. They had their entire lives ahead of them, birthdays, graduations, Weddings, kids of their own. Among the fallen were also teachers, men and women who devoted their lives to helping our children fulfill their dreams. As a country, we have been through this too many times. And we're gonna have to come together and take meaningful action to prevent more tragedies like this, regardless of the politics. This evening, Michelle and I will do what I know every parent in America will do, which is hug our children a little tighter. And we'll tell them that we love them. And we'll remind each other how deeply we love one another. But there are families in Connecticut who cannot do that tonight. And they need all of us right now. In the hard days to come, that community needs us to be at our best as Americans. And I will do everything in my power as president to help. May God bless the memory of the victims, heal the brokenhearted, and bind up their wounds.
9: Back in Connecticut at around 3 p.m. came the dreadful moment when Governor Malloy walked back into the crowded firehouse to deliver the unimaginable news to Nicole Hockley, Mark Barden, and the other first grade families.
0: I was by myself, aimlessly milling around and eventually being kind of told anyone who's still left, you know, go to the back room and, and, and we can talk more there.
10: I remember that dark, hollow feeling when I realized that so many people had already left and there were just this group, handful of people kind of milling around. And I was mixed with a sense of, profound dread I, I didn't I didn't want to I didn't want to start contemplating the possible and Jackie had gotten there at, at that point I was just kind of melting down and at some point it was actually articulated to us that if you have not been reunited with your loved one yet they're they are among the casualties and that was Governor Malloy who made that announcement And I I think that was the moment when the room erupted. It's just awful. Awful sound.
3: Evil visited this community today.
9: This is Connecticut Governor Daniel P. Malloy.
3: We will get through it, uh, but this is a terrible time uh, for this community and for these uh, families. Uh, Our police personnel uh, and others are doing uh, the utmost uh, to... uh, clear this situation as soon as possible and uh, to return these children to their parents or these loved ones to their fellow loved ones as quickly as possible. I never thought uh, that in a public career that I would have to face uh, these kinds of circumstances or that they would visit uh, themselves upon uh, this community or the people of uh, Connecticut. Uh, Our prayers at this time, have to go out to the families.
7: Here again is cameraman John Senecal. I was in the satellite truck, and I'm sitting there as as the families walk right by. I could see those families' faces walking by that live truck, just broken, absolutely broken. It's unreal. Like you, you can't you can't even begin to think of how bad that just must have been.
0: All over this town.
6: In churches like the United Methodist Church behind us, well, the lights are on and they are still open for prayer tonight.
9: Diane Sawyer and Chris Cuomo were in Newtown covering the story for ABC News.
3: The sentiment here echoed in what you're seeing now down by the Washington Monument in D.C. Many members of the Connecticut delegation was there, but this story is really about their home here, Newtown, Connecticut, just 27,000 people. This is a place where people know each other. Families know each other. And what happened today is known by all. And it's not just about how many were lost, it's about the age. What is hitting everyone so hard is the reality of these being children that were targeted by a madman.
9: Good evening and welcome to a special hour of coverage. Lester Holt is in our New York studios and our team is here in what must be tonight the saddest place on earth, Newtown, Connecticut. It was here in the even smaller hamlet called Sandy Hook at the local elementary school for grades K through 4 that a young man wearing black and heavily armed entered the school and started firing today. In the network evening news business, when you are anchoring from the scene of a breaking story, it is common to update the broadcast after its first East Coast airing as the time zones go all the way west to California. So we at NBC did that, and then the network cleared the final hour in primetime that night, 10 p.m. Eastern, meaning whatever was supposed to air never did, as our team took over the airwaves, knowing there were millions of viewers from coast to coast who had come home from work that night feeling sick over this tragedy and wanting to know more. Although overcome with soul-crushing anguish and grief, Both Mark Barden and Nicole Hockley, as was mentioned earlier, felt compelled to honor their sons' lives by transforming their personal tragedies into meaningful action, determined to protect other children and their families from experiencing the same heartbreaking fate.
0: At Dylan's service, Ian and I spoke about change that would come from this, because even then we were very focused on something positive, positive coming from this so that this wouldn't happen again, so that there would be a legacy for our son and that his death and everyone else's death wouldn't be in vain, that it would lead to something change. So we started talking about change early, but I didn't hear about community members that were coming together until um, shortly after Christmas. You know, we went to a few meetings and there was this description of a platform for us to work with and stand on to get the changes that we wanted to, and to advocate for the changes that we wanted to see. And for me, I was like, I am all in. So um, after the first week of January, I was like, "This this is what I'm going to do.
10: In the days and weeks after the shooting, as we were just trying to literally survive from one minute to the next, James and Natalie were asking questions. James was 12 and Natalie was 10. Like, what happened? And how did this happen? And who did this? And why would somebody do this? And we couldn't come up with a single response to any of those questions. And knowing that this group of folks from our community were trying to understand and learn some of the answers to those same questions. Like Nicole, I knew pretty much right away that this was what I needed to do. This is what I wanted to do. This is what I had to do.
9: After several days of intense international media coverage, correspondent Chris Jansing learned the folks of Sandy Hook were ready for the media to move on so they could be left alone to grieve on their own.
6: On the last day I was there, There was a huge memorial that had grown up around the middle of the town and people came and left flowers and teddy bears and notes and photos. And toward the end of that day, a woman who I'd seen there before came up to me and she thanked me for my coverage. And she said, now I have to ask you for a favor. I said, okay. She said, it's time for you all to leave. It's time for us as a community to be able to grieve. There are families who won't come to this memorial because they don't wanna have to talk to the media and they're afraid that they will have to. And so I'm asking you this respectfully because I believe if the major networks go, maybe other people will take the hint and go as well. And later that day, I spoke to my bosses and I said, it's time for us to go. I think for all of us who do this for a living, we all have to carefully consider what impact we have and what imprint we leave wherever we go.
9: Ali Velci here speaks for all of us in the news business who've ever had to cover a school shooting. It quickly becomes apparent that it's a category of reporting all its own and in the most crushing way.
2: The problem was processing because I cover hurricanes and tornadoes that every time you do that, you get better at it, right? Every hurricane I cover, I end up with better gear, and I end up better having to understand how the hurricane is going to hit and, and how it's all going to go. You don't get better at school shootings or mass shootings. There's nothing about it to make you better. The police get better at how they communicate with us. The families get better at figuring out organization and how to get their messaging out. That There was no messaging back in the uh, Sandy Hook days. But we as reporters get no better at this. The tragedy of people who were alive... Living their lives, doing in many cases celebrating or doing things that they do on their, in the, you know, on a normal basis, now dead for no discernible reason. It was hard to process then, and unfortunately, it never got easier. But the idea of dead children—that was something I, I had great difficulty with. What I did believe, by the way, and I think I said on TV that day and in subsequent days, is that this is definitely going to change things. And I was, I was quite wrong about that.
9: And before we go, forgive me if I take a moment to go through my memories of that day, and they are quite personal. At one point on that cold night, I was standing at our anchor location on a small berm across the street from the school and the firehouse. We had asked our medical expert, Dr. Nancy Snyderman, to join our coverage. And as she and I talked about the loss and the effect this tragedy would have on the surviving children and their families, I realized we were actually holding hands just off camera. We were, in that moment, just parents. And one more thing. As the weekend went on, there was a news conference with the local coroner. A reporter at the news conference asked the coroner what kind of clothing the children wore to school that day. Without hesitation and speaking through exhaustion, he looked at the reporter and answered, They were wearing little kids' stuff. Well, of course they were. These little kids were wearing the clothes their parents last saw them in as they bundled them up for school, the same clothes on the same little kids they were expecting to see that afternoon, hopping off the bus or in the pickup line outside school. It felt like such a normal day, 11 days before Christmas in a seemingly perfect little town covered in snow and twinkling lights. A little town where... The old school has since been torn down because on that day in December, it became the saddest place on earth. Now, as always, we want to thank you for listening and we close with this important message from Bill Curtis.
1: I'm Bill Curtis. Sandy Hook Promise is a national nonprofit organization founded and led by family members whose loved ones were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Their intent is to honor all victims of gun violence by turning their tragedy into a transformation. Here to share their mission are co-founders Mark Barton and Nicole Hockley.
0: School shootings are not inevitable. There is so much that you can do. None of this is inevitable. We know signs exist when someone is at risk of hurting themselves or someone else. So that's what we do at Sandy Hook Promise is we teach you what to look for and how to act when you see it. And then if you see it, we give you the tools to ensure that it's acted on.
10: And when you're trained to recognize those warning signs and you know what to do next, it just becomes who you are. And over time, through generations, that's where the culture change comes.
1: Sandy Hook Promise is doing everything they can to protect children from school shootings, violence, and other harmful acts. But they need your support today to expand their ability to bring their Know the Signs violence prevention programs into more schools and communities. Please go to sandyhookpromise.org and donate what you can today. That's sandyhookpromise.org. We thank you.